0: Hi, hello, welcome everyone. Um, Thanks very much for joining us today. I'm Linda Yu, an economist and author, and it's my pleasure to chair this event, Building Global Britain, the Role of London and the Regions. It's actually the last event of the year for the Centre for Progressive Policy, so we're absolutely delighted um, to end on what I'm sure will be a high note and a hugely important question. On Leveling Up, the CPP has run actually a series of events um, on this and they've done a huge amount of very interesting research on the subject, um, which I hope you'll check out. And I'm sure Ben from the team who's on the panel um, will touch upon uh, for us in the next hour or so. So um, before I introduce this fantastic panel, um, let me just give you uh, the running order. So each of the panelists will speak uh, for about five minutes and then uh, we will open it up to a discussion, um, as well as to your questions. So I hope that you ask lots of questions. uh, So please put it into the Q&A function, um, and I will be uh, bringing your questions um, in. So, um, another reminder, another housekeeping reminder (laughs) before I introduce the panel, is that um, this is, the session is being recorded, and it's also being uh, broadcast via YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter, so please share and discuss online. Um, and uh, if you're going to uh, use a hashtag and tweet, please do. Um, the hashtag is CPPLevelUp and uh, it's at Policy. So now let me uh, introduce um, today's uh, terrific speaker. So we have with us Stephanie Bozen. She's the UK and Ireland correspondent for Developed. Um, and she'll be talking us through Brexit. Um, and um, we're also joined by Richard Brown, Deputy Director of the Centre for London. I can think of no one better to lead us through um, that uh, role of the capital um, in the discussion today. Um, and we're joined by Ben Franklin, who I've already uh, mentioned, at the Head of Research um, at the CPP. And we also have Professor Richard Jones, who is Chair Materials, Physics and Innovation Policy and Associate Vice President for Innovation and Regional Economic Development at the University of Manchester. So it's wonderful to be uh, joined by you as well. So um, with that, I'm going to um, ask Ben, who is really the home team, um, to try and uh, set set up this discussion for us, Ben, um, in terms of the UK and its place, um, you know, in such a time of trying to make it an inclusive recovery. And of course, if you could touch on levelling up, especially in terms of the long run for the UK and for post-Brexit UK, that'd be most welcome. So the floor is yours and you have five minutes.
1: Thank you very much indeed. I kind of feel we could have called this uh, whole session Rebuilding Global Britain because, you know post covid it's going to take an awful lot a general generational effort or longer to really uh, change change the game for the for the uk so i think my my initial framing is going to be somewhat pessimistic but hopefully i provide some thoughts on solutions as well and not just be a problem uh, maker so i think it's worth thinking about before covid because the uk already had a, a number of significant problems before covid Flatlining life expectancy was was, was partly a European problem, but also in particular a problem that the UK was facing after decades of improvements in life expectancy. There have been little or no productivity growth for for 10 years or more. We've we've faced a lost lost decade for sure. And the UK has higher regional inequality than most other um, OECD uh, nations. So even before COVID, we were facing significant structural challenges, and COVID has shone a light on some of those and made some of them worse, and our problems have intensified as well. So if we think about some of the COVID impacts, clearly the UK has faced one of the biggest economic hits, partly because it faced the worst, uh, one of the worst health uh, impacts from the crisis in terms of the, the death rate per population. And so that has really been a, a, a massive a hit against the government's, uh, and which, which came in in December 2019, of course, against the government's plans to, to rebuild the economy at that point. Brexit is coming, you know, that's that's happening, and it may well, according to the OBR, make us 5% poorer in the long run, so that's going to be an additional hit. And because of co- COVID is, is revealing some new uh, vulnerabilities as well. You know, I'm going to hear from the Centre for London shortly, but, you know, the the levelling down of London may be possible. We're seeing employment rates fall dramatically in the capital. We're seeing vacancies lower relative to 2019 than in other uh, regions. And the unemployment claim claim count is higher in London than other regions too, and has absolutely soared during this crisis. And not to mention that many of the many of the uh, the worst impacted in terms of proportions on furlough are in london as well many of london's boroughs so there are big um, there are big challenges that the uk was facing before covid and it's going to be facing afterwards how on earth can we get to grips with some of those uh, big challenges well in a sense government hits on something with the whole levelling up idea and it's only an idea at the moment so so basically government needs to go with levelling up strongly and put the resources into levelling up as much as it can it needs to go beyond a slogan which it currently is needs to operationalise it and invest in it you know we are facing the worst economic crisis in 300 years in terms of the level of a fall in our in our our gdp we potentially need you know fdr levels of investment in levelling up if we are going to achieve um, this, the kinds of, of aspirations that government has been talking about in terms of levelling up the regions. And that's before you also talk about intra uh, regional inequalities as well. So if government are going to provide that kind of level of funding, and there is, you know, there is a bit of consensus now across the economics profession that fiscal stimulus is required post post this crisis, and we've, we've hopefully therefore learned our lesson from 2007-2008, where should the government prioritise its, its levelling up money, and it requires more than the four billion levelling up fund that was mentioned uh, earlier uh, last, last week. So priorities that the CPP have been particularly interested in is, is around adult education. You know, traditionally we've been a higher education country, but there's huge inequalities in educational attainment, and that is one of the core reasons why certain places are lagging uh, are lagging behind public health in the round not just talking about the nhs which is you know seems to be the only game in town but we desperately need to transform ourselves from what what we have which is a sickness service to a true population health system and that means a health in all policies approach economic policy and health policy properly integrated with one another and another area that we've been really pursuing is around this notion of community infrastructure. You know, think SureStart, for example, which has been such an important community hub, which was cold uh, after 2010, but has since been shown to improve education and attainment in the poorest areas and health outcomes as well. These sorts of community assets have been decimated um, and left us in a very vulnerable position when COVID um, kicked off. So, they're the, the three core priorities that we're interested in. Clearly, there's a huge amount more to be done in, in broader infrastructure spending, um, in the Green New Deal, although 12 billion is clearly not enough. But crucially, we also think that the, the way that investment is done cannot just be from the centre anymore. You know, it's about places having agency and being able to control their own destiny more than they have in the past. So not only do we need a proper levelling up New Deal, but we need it to be done from the regions and from the places themselves as well. So just a flavor of the huge challenges and some of the potential solutions to some of those challenges.
0: Fantastic introduction. Thank you very much, Ben. Um, So there's a huge amount we need to uh, to try and tackle. And um, we're gonna have Stephanie uh, speak next to start us um, on thinking about um,
2: the framing,
0: um, the impact. Of brexit so stephanie the floor is yours
2: thank you linda thank you very much um yeah i'm i'm a bit here of an outsider obviously and i will also um talk and uh, i can't talk so much about europe but I, I have to talk about the german perspective on this while i was a brussels correspondent but um if i talk a bit about the say economic consequences of brexit and what that might mean in terms of the uk's economic future i'd, I'd rather stick to the german british um link here um as was said before the uh, the impact of either a no deal brexit or a brexit with the thin deal and we will maybe know a little bit more tonight um could be around according to bloomberg economics around seven percent uh shrink uh, shrinking of, of gdp and only yesterday there was the latest uh collateral brexit damage was uh, announced by ineos who decided not to build their next flagship car in wales but in germany so that was good news for mercedes uh, and it's just one story of unfortunately many that um, british companies are increasingly resettling in europe or if they don't uh, settle in europe then at least they open European branches and therefore especially for London uh, that means that high skilled jobs and therefore money and taxpayers money and so on is going away from London and somewhere else to to the continent. Um, The the German industry, um, this is interesting and especially if you compare it to to uh, the the British industry, there has been a long time already preparations for Brexit. So I can remember talking to German industry two years ago already when they were trying to restructure their business uh, with the UK market. Um, This might also have to do in this instance with the federal structure of Germany, because you have a lot of local even and regional they're called Industrie Come Handelskammern. It's like industry and trade chambers that have members and inform their members very early on what Brexit might mean. Of course, Brexit always had to mean no deal because um, there was never clear what it was really going to look like. So companies have been preparing for quite a long time. And I remember talking uh, recently to the head of the German, uh, to the uh, trade committee in the European Parliament who confirmed that 60% of German companies have already restructured their supply chains with the United Kingdom. Uh, And another, just to give you one more figure, in 2015, the UK was Germany's fifth most important trade partner. It's now the seventh most important trade partner. And um, the export volume has already gone down around 10 billion euro a year. Um, But of course, there are also a lot of opportunities. And I don't want to sound like um, Brexit is going to be only only negative. I can feel in some areas really, um, yeah, a, a feeling of new be- beginning, beginning a new chapter. I just spoke to a company over the weekend who have been approached by, I can't say who, but a, by a British regional uh, government to invest uh, in 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 that region with a lot of tax incentives. Um, And the UK is such an important market for the German uh, business sector, because it's very dynamic, it's very inventive, and there will always be lots of interest to to invest and work in the UK and with the UK. Um, But I think the the way forward is not easy, and um, especially now, why are these uh, talks in Brussels so difficult? One of the reason is the, I would call it the policy of scorched earth by the British Prime Minister with the internal market bill. I think it is a bit underestimated the effect of the um, of the internal market bill, even though it was now withdrawn, but this has caused a lot of uh, loss of trust in, in Europe. And that's why now the Commission is even more than ever insisting on very strict rules, how to make sure that um, neither side can... Um, break the the treaty that is um, supposed to be done very soon, hopefully. Uh, And um, this morning, actually, I I chaired a panel, and this is one more small anecdote I briefly want to tell you, um, by the Scottish Royal Society of Arts and the Scottish Business Hub in Berlin. And you can see that in the background, there's already a lot going on of initiatives of seeing where you can work together on on a bilateral level, whether it's now mainly between institutions, academic research, um, but also increasingly, uh, for example, green energy is very big. The German hydrogen strategy with billions of Euro, they are looking for places to invest um, where you can produce hydrogen, green hydrogen, which Scotland, for example, is one of the best places to do. Um, So there are a lot of opportunities, I think, Um, but with less exchange and more hurdles, there will be less income and less investment in the UK. And therefore, I think the, the for the time being, it is, it is going to be challenging. And talking about the leveling up agenda from a European perspective, so of course, it is difficult to understand why in a time where you want to level up, you make yourself life so difficult. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much, Stephanie. Um, I now want to bring in uh, Professor Richard Jones uh, to give um, a regional economic development um, framing uh, to this issue. Um, You know, we heard Ben say earlier um, that it needs to start um, from uh, the regions. So the floor is yours.
3: Thank you. Yes, so I, I really am going to start in exactly the same place as Ben. I think we won't get anywhere towards uh, building better building back better unless we address these really deep-seated uh, problems that the UK has. And I think the UK's regional economic disparities and the decade-long stagnation of productivity growth are really central to the, to the problem. And I do want to stress how much the UK is a divided country. We've got the greater southeast, London, southeast, parts of East Anglia, which essentially look like a prosperous northern european country but in economic terms much of the rest of the country uh, is underperforming performing in some cases worse than the the eastern provinces of germany more on the level of southern italy or portugal and i want to stress this imbalance shows up mostly in productivity i'm i'm not here to have a kind of northern whinge about living standards but it's actually the productivity that where this shows up and that's because uh, the UK runs a very effective transfer union. So uh, 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 the greater South, it's only London and South East are the only regions of the UK that actually contribute more to the government than they take out. So in a sense, the UK is an operation in which money is generated in the in the greater South East and it's shoveled up to the rest of the country to, to even out those living standards. Now, what's paradoxical is that we transfer money to cover current spending, but when we concentrate on, on the investments that we'd need to make to drive productivity growth, those investments are concentrated in the already prosperous greater Southeast. So I focus on research and development because that's what I'm interested in. It's not the only thing that matters, but I think it's important as something associated with high value companies that operate at the technological frontier and those companies that are the ones that uh, drive productivity growth. And when we think about R and D, we need to understand the UK has changed over four decades from one of the highest R and D intensity countries in the world to a position uh, which lags behind both uh, uh, traditional competitors like uh, uh, Germany or France or the USA, uh, increasingly behind uh, East Asian companies, uh, countries like Korea and China. And uh, in the in the international league table, we're now between the Czech Republic. And that R&D intensity, if we look at the public sector R&D intensity, that's concentrated to an astonishing degree in London and the two uh, sub-regions containing Oxford and Cambridge. Nearly half of public R&D spending goes into those uh, those places. And as a result, Cambridge is a fantastic, prosperous, knowledge-based economy that is a a great asset to the UK and indeed to, to, to Europe. What's even more curious is that public spending is more concentrated than private sector spending. And so we've got regions like the northwest have very high, high very productive R&D of industries, chemicals, pharmaceuticals, uh, East Midlands you could look at in terms of uh, aerospace and transport equipment. Uh, And here we've got places that have the potential to have stronger innovation systems than they currently do because the public money is not following the market signals that the private sector is making. Uh, Then we've got regions like Wales and the North East where we just don't have enough R&D whether that's public or private and the kind of scale of the disparity, Ben talked about scale, A back of the envelope uh, calculation would say you'd need about four billion a year of extra revenue spending in R&D to level up R&D spending across the regions. So uh, Brexit, we can't not talk about Brexit some of our highest productivity sectors are particularly integrated in global value chains and that's, they're going to be at real risk. Uh, the auto industry, of course, has made a fantastic turnaround since uh, the end of the 2000s, bit of an unsung triumph of industrial strategy, frankly, uh, a very conscious effort from starting with Mandelson uh, in the last Labour administration, really continuing to the coalition and the Conservative government with few glitches. Uh, we're getting a hard lesson now I think about the degree to which we can talk about technological self-sufficiency and I think subsequent world events not just Brexit but we look at the turn against China are really giving us a bit of a shock I think about the extent to which that technological sovereignty has been lost if I can put it in that you know we talk about sovereignty a lot and I think policymakers don't understand that. I don't think there's a full understanding of the degree to which the auto industry is so integrated in European supply chains. The degree to which chemicals industry, a, a very, uh, I think, an unsung sector that's very important for the UK, not really appreciated by policymakers at all. Uh, the, the, the degree to which that is integrated in European supply chains and indeed regulatory frameworks through, through REACH so uh, i think we're going to have to uh, think about you know we we are going to have to rebuild our economy to build some more technological capacity but we're a small country in a big world so we need to think very deeply about how what our place is going to be so i think we're going to need uh, to 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 rebuild regional innovation systems is a really big part of uh, leveling up that's going to happen have to happen in a way that addresses big national challenges i agree with ben that Uh, that you know getting a sustainable and humane health and social care system including very much public health is a really big part of that I think net zero is a massive part I think I'm really um, the the net zero target is fantastic but it's a huge challenge I don't think it's widely enough understood what a challenge it is to decarbonize transport decarbonize domestic heating and industry uh, double generating capacity in the electricity industry develop new energy vectors like hydrogen Stephanie mentioned hydrogen in the context of the the great german uh, initiatives in that area so it's a huge dislocation we have to do it Uh, it will be expensive and it would be even more expensive if we don't use innovation to drive down that cost. So I think we're gonna, uh, as we build these innovation systems, parts outside the greater, the greater Southeast are gonna be really important here. Lots of this is gonna be done, not, in, you know, not so much in Milton Keynes or Guildford, it's gonna be done in Teesside, on the Humber, in Cumbria, on the Wirral. I think that's the challenge that we face in building back better, thanks.
0: Thanks very much, Richard. I did the thing which always happens on Zoom. I think I've unmuted myself, which I clearly did not. So I was just about to, I was just saying to everyone, please um, use the hashtag um, CPPLevelUp and uh, follow uh, at CenterProPolicy and uh, and start an online conversation. And please, if you have questions for the panelists, please also pop those into the Q&A box and we will turn to those very shortly. So um, now to our final speaker, um, Richard Brown, uh, to give us a sense of London's role um, in this discussion. So the floor is yours.
4: Uh, thank you very much, Chair. I'm just going to switch off self-view so I don't um, watch myself gesticulating at the camera, which is something I particularly hate. Um, it's, we're obviously in the middle of two big storms at the moment. Um, you know, we have the storm of uh, the pandemic, we have the storm of Brexit, and how we come out of these is still a bit unclear, but um, reflecting first of all on, I'm gonna reflect first of all on some of the points that Ben made about the impact on London so far. Now I'm gonna talk of the pandemic, talk a little bit about the impact of uh, uh, Brexit or what we know about that, and then think how these things might affect the relationship between London and uh, the rest of the UK. So as, as Ben observed, London's seen some quite significant health impacts, uh, particularly in the first phase, the numbers are going up again now, unfortunately, particularly in the first phase, um, but also a big economic impact, big rise in unemployment, and the sharpest slowdown in city centre activity that we've seen in the UK, similar more to somewhere like New York, another big transit-oriented city. And I think that reflects the two very different bits of um, London's service sector economy. Part of the service sector, the part that I'm probably part of, the part that um, includes professional services, financial services, um, film and TV, lawyers, accountancy, business services, those services have largely just moved into people's front rooms and have carried on being delivered with minimal, some disruption, but minimal disruption. The other bit of London's service sector economy, the bit that depends on those workers and on tourists coming into the city centre, has been devastated. And, uh, you know, you really see that in the difference between what's happened to people working in hospitality and catering compared to people working in uh, business services. Um, And those are also the most vulnerable sectors to start with in London, they're the sectors with the youngest workers, uh, with the poorest paid workers, um, wage differentials in London don't really, st- wage premiums in London don't really start until you're in one of the higher paid categories. Um, and also more workers from uh, minority ethnic communities. So the people are already quite precarious in their position in London's economy have been hit hardest so far. What we don't yet know, of course, is what the recovery trajectory is going to be. Um, And there are an awful lot of unknowns. I mean, we can expect that there is significant suppressed demand, certainly from international tourism, and that may start coming back next year. We can expect that there has been some permanent restructuring of retail, and I think we've seen that over the recent weeks, and um, the shift from uh, in-person purchasing to online purchasing will, I think, stick and will be worsened. I think there are other questions that are less clear, and I'll come back to this, like how commuting patterns may change in the future, whether we'll... Go back to uh, nine to five working, or whether we'll see some sort of hybridity. So, there are a lot of uncertain um, impacts. There are also some specific risks in London, I think, of um, higher qualified workers have been put out of work, um, trading down, as it were, and pushing people already marginalized from the labor market. And London has one of the highest UK uh, unemployment rates, certainly the highest regional one, though um, it's different by local authority. Um, people already marginalized from the labor market, like young black men, for example, pushing them even further away from it. So there is a challenge that this tends to happen in recessions in London, that um, better qualified people trade down and push other marginalised people further away. There's also an interesting d- dynamic going on about, um, now I'll come back to that when we talk about Brexit. Um, sorry. Um, there's also an interesting dynamic going on in relation to um, uh, London's workforce, and we're already starting to see this. Uh, which relates, I think, to Brexit, as well as to the pandemic. Um, One of the things that surprised us, we've written various reports about the impact of Brexit on London, was the stickiness of London's international workforce over the years since the uh, independence independence vote, the Brexit vote in 2016. The European workforce stayed pretty consistent. There was churn, there's always churn, but it stayed pretty similar. European workers have started leaving in large numbers over the past few months. Um, Between autumn uh, 2019 and autumn 2020, the UK has lost around 400,000 European workers. And a lot of those will have been lost from London, will have been lost from sectors like catering. So there's an interesting challenge next year. This may have softened the blow for uh, London workers in the short term, but what this means for London's ability to build back if it's lost that important part of its workforce and lost access to international workers through the new immigration regime is a a big challenge. In terms of trade deals, um, London obviously has a slightly different position from the rest of the UK. It has a more services weighted uh, trade offer, which has traditionally been slightly more internationalized rather than um, uh, compared to the goods offer. Obviously the discussions at the moment are primarily about uh, goods trade agreements. Services have never really been addressed so much through the single market either. Um, And you can actually start seeing elements of a more global approach from Britain in things like the trade deal with Japan. that includes more liberal rules about for good or ill, but more liberal rules for good or ill about um, data transfer across national international boundaries. So there are probably opportunities for London. There are opportunities for other parts of the UK service sector that come from um, detaching to the European Union. But that's not to underplay the huge impact on things like financial services, professional services and all those areas where that easy flow of people, easy flow of qualifications, easy flow of knowledge has been disrupted. So looking at the longer term as to what this might all mean for the relationship between London and the rest of the UK, um, I think there are questions about what the future of global cities like London may be. Um, If we're seeing a pushback against global travel, will that lead to dispersal of global functions or will it lead to greater concentration in a few big city nodes? Will we see, I suspect we will see some reshoring of strategic functions. If you look at the uh, problems with supply chains and medical uh, supplies earlier this year, some reshoring of those functions and perhaps some more offshoring of um, routine online work, the sort of thing we're all sitting at home doing. If I can do this from uh, Brighton or London, why couldn't I be doing this from Barcelona or Singapore? Um, So some of those things may change the way that global cities use and change the balance between London and the rest of the UK. There may also be different commuting patterns. Um, I think people will will not be going back to a straightforward nine to five. But if people travel into London or to other big cities for a few days a week, that could see a stronger network between London and other big cities, not just London and the wider Southeast, but London and the network of cities in the Midlands and the North, where the capital is less somewhere that people live in the capital and are separated from the rest of the country, and more somewhere that people from across the country can use, can use as a gateway to um, international trade um and it's worth noting of course that we talk of london as a global city most of london's trade is with the rest of the uk most of london's exports are to the rest of the uk and about a third of the rest of the uk's exports are to london If you can talk of internal exports there so we may see people using london in a different way london being more attainable by more people if rents are coming down we may also see more people being able to move to london for some of their lives i suppose there's a risk that's seen as just perpetuating a brain drain but i I suppose I feel that there is a way that people can use London for a short period, go back to other cities and actually spend more time in London using it as their capital rather than seeing it as this increasingly distant and increasingly unattainable city. So I think we've got a bumpy few years ahead, but I think there could be interesting ways that we could restructure some of those elements of London-UK regional relationships.
0: Thank you very much, and Richard. and. Anne- There are some questions that have come in, so I'm actually going to jump straight to those so we can uh, get um, the audience's questions answered. And of course, if you're watching and you'd like to submit a question, please do so using the Q&A function, um, or you could tweet at me at at CPPLevelUp, and um, and I'll try and uh, get um, all of your questions answered um, by this panel on this hugely important question. So uh, the first question uh, that's come in by Mike Humphrey, is to what extent do we want to revive global Britain anyway? Why do progressive voices not recognize the problems with hyper-globalization? So, great fundamental question. Um, who, who wants to uh, take that, Ben?
1: I, um, I mean, I don't think, as, as a center, we, we wouldn't advocate for hyperglobalization. I think I'm not quite sure what hyperglobalization is, but nevertheless, I think that Brexit will make us poorer as a nation. Um, and so, you know, how we benchmark ourselves against other nations is is a lot of about how we feel as well. So, you know, if we, if we are, for example, uh, the incomes of people in the UK therefore shrink as a result of um of brexit then that's a problem you know that's a that's a that's a material and economic problem um but i think you know from the centre's perspective we see progressive policy in a much broader way than than about trade you know it's we can do a huge amount internally to improve the lot of people um who live in the uk you know there is ways that you can um invest uh, publicly publicly invest to support some of the things that government have been talking about in terms of levelling up. And actually that if you do embrace a kind of globalised world, you can therefore secure kind of adjust, um, adjustment to that. So everyone therefore should buy in. And that's kind of where our vision of inclusive growth is. It shouldn't just be about a few people benefiting from trade and investment and what have you. It should be about a kind of joint endeavour where you have the correct policies in place in order to to pursue that. And just just as as an aside on Brexit as well, it may well impact on some of the red wall, for example, because manufacturing is such an important component, for example, to parts of the East Midlands. So it's not just as simple as the the well-off will do well in a globalized world and and the poor will do badly. It's a much more complicated picture than that. And we can use a broader array of policies in a progressive sense to ensure that globalization goes side by side with reductions in poverty and improvements to living standards.
0: Thank you, Ben. I mean, I think it's a great question that gets um, essentially at the heart of what we're discussing today, which is, I suppose, uh, Stephanie mentioned maybe later on today, we'll find out if uh, there's a deal or not. Uh, But either way, the transition period looks like it's ending at the end of the year. So looking at a post-Brexit future and knowing that uh, globalization, which have had periods of, uh, I think Danny Roderick described hyper-globalization as the period of the 90s and 2000s, when you had this massive increase in foreign direct investment and opening up, especially of emerging markets. And maybe you know, and not maybe, but certainly less consideration was given to the distributional impact of these massive shocks of the integration of China, of the, um, you know, the the broadening um, of world markets and the leveling up um, agenda, um, you know, is, is trying to, I think, address, you know, some of that, which um, we know globalization creates losers. Um, that's been known since the days of David Ricardo, Um, in the 19th century. Um, But the question is, you know, um, how, given the the current, uh, you know, globalized world in which we live, can we have um, leveling up policies to try and um, mitigate um, some of the regional disparities um, that we know comes with that? And so Richard Jones, um, I think I'm gonna put you in the hot seat um, in terms of the role of the regions in, um, in trying to um, address um, what will soon be uh, global Britain um, out of the EU um, in some form
3: <laughs> in a few weeks. <laughs> Yeah, I I mean, you know, I I think I have some, you know, I have mixed feelings about globalization and undoubtedly, um, you you know, on the one hand, you you mentioned David Ricardo, even physicists like me have heard of him and uh, we understand the... uh, uh, the, the the you know the, the power of that kind of international division of labor, if I can put it put 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 that put it that way in in raising prosperity for everyone, but undoubtedly uh, uh, the large parts of uh, particularly manufacturing industry, which are you know more important in 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 the regions, have suffered very badly from free flows of capital and uh, the, the, some, some of those rationalizations I think the issue that, that I have is I don't really I, I'm not actually convinced that uh, that, that many people and, and either policymakers or you know the, the general public in those red wall seats actually understand what's happened and understood the degree to which our economy, has been so intertwined with uh, uh, with, with uh, the, the other economies in the EU. You know, I think I'm a great fan of the historian David Edgerton, and I think, you know, he got it absolutely right in saying, you, you know, what people are nostalgic for is not actually the empire. What people are nostalgic for is that age of national capitalism that happened between 1950 and 1980. And I think, people don't understand enough that we don't have a national capitalism anymore. And, you know, you know, in a sense, Brexit was a kind of call for a return to agency, but that agency has gone away anyway. It didn't go away because we joined the EU. It joined because we entered this period of, uh, of large capital flows, of uh, uh, the, the fact that uh, companies were bought and sold. And in that sense, that part of that agency probably isn't coming back and I think it's going to be problematic both for the political class and for uh, many of the people who you know saw that the economy wasn't working for them and voted in a way that reflected that I think uh, we're we're, we're in for a bit of a hard time as some hard realities come about the way that our economy has evolved.
0: Thank you um, Richard. Um, The Uh, Next question um, has come from Paul Goldsmith. Um, What tax changes could the Chancellor make to incentivize R&D localizing um, it to left behind areas, given the continuing private sector investment into the Southeast and into more infrastructure, um, e.g. the Varsity Line, how can we stop the continuing location of business and migration of key talent uh, to the Southeast? Um, Richard Jones, I think this is probably still uh, question for you and then I'll go to Ben. Um, And then Richard Brown and uh, Stephanie, um, if you wanted to come in on any of these, just um, (laughs) put in the chat, (laughs) Richard Jones.
3: I think the key point here is this: this really striking imbalance between private sector and the public sector. What's really striking about R and D investment in the UK is not so much that lots of it happens in the southeast. You know, I think uh, you, know, you know agglomeration effects are, are, are important and powerful and, uh, and should be exploited. It's the fact that we're kind of under we, we've got lost agglomeration effects that we're not taking uh, to taking care of. I mean, it is very odd. You know, the East Midlands is in many ways a very RD intensive place but it's only the private sector that's investing likewise the northeast i mean cheshire is a fantastic is a real outlier it's a fantastic uh, it's a very prosperous little piece of regional economy it's driven by the private sector almost entirely and there's almost no very very little uh, public sector investment so i think in a sense you know there are kind of five pound notes lying on the ground there are kind of spillovers that we're not exploiting because we're not we're, we're not seeing the market signals if you like that are really saying you know invest in these places i think that there's a kind of political problem here which is because you know the, the the centralization of our political system means that uh... You know, I've people I I have come close to explaining to number 10 advisers having to get a map out to explain where Cheshire is. There's a kind of real lack of understanding of the texture of different local economies in Victoria Street in in, in central government. So I kind of Ben mentioned, I think uh, there needs to be more agency given to the regions. And I think that's a really powerful and important point that we need to make more of. Thank you, Ben.
1: Yes, we're actually publishing a paper tomorrow, which looks up, up, in, in more detail about industrial strategy and the UK's industrial strategy, where it's been historically. You know the, the 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 sudden grand challenges that came out of Theresa May, and then the uncertainty that we that we have now. And so while while this while my response is not directly about R and D, it is about how you can identify those assets and industries that are within local areas that may be low productivity local areas but still have fledgling high value added sectors that could be encouraged and the problem is in the past we've been too Um, centralised and dogmatic in terms of how we've identified key sectors, you know, so, oh, AI is brilliant. Let's invest in AI. Green sounds great. Let's do that. Let's throw a little bit of money about it and call it a grand challenge, where actually you need to be much more specific about nurturing the the specific sectors in particular places in order to help them grow and provide high value add and good jobs to people, which is so important as as we recover out of this crisis.
0: Thank you, Ben. Um, Let me bring in uh, uh, Stephanie and then Richard
2: Brad. Yeah, just just a a very quick thought, and I'm certainly not qualified to to talk too much about this because I'm not an economist, Um, uh, but uh, I I can compare Britain and Germany a little bit. And I think one of the main differences which I have noticed over the years, um, living here and reporting from, from the UK is, uh, the, the level of, or the very low level level of authority or competence that regions or local um, authorities have. So if I compare that, for example, where I come from, which is uh, a town in, on the uh, Dutch border, Mönchengladbach, it's near Düsseldorf, um, it had a very strong tradition of textile, actually. That area was called the Manchester of, of, of Germany, but then after the war in the 50s, 60s, uh, all the textile Uh, production uh, left first to Portugal then to China or to to Turkey and then further away and there was a lot of unemployment and um, but somehow they managed to restructure the whole industry and they created clusters so they created clusters with the local um, university it's not a university it's more um, we call it a Hochschule Fachhochschule which is far more I think you say vocational Uh, they do a lot of cooperation with the um, local uh, textile companies, which are now not so much producing, but they are high-tech textile companies. They work for mainly for the automotive industry. Um, at the same time, because of Schengen, suddenly that place, Mönchengladbach, found, found itself in the middle of Western Europe. So um, there, has, there has been um, a massive uh, investment by Amazon, uh, lots of um, lots of store, how do you call it, um, uh, uh, Logistic centers that have been um, Uh, Settled there, and this also because the local authorities have the competence to um, give tax breaks to these companies. And I understand that, but I might be wrong. You will be much better to explain that there is always the question in Whitehall: Is it worth giving money to the North, and how much benefit do I get? In London, I get three pounds for one pound investment, while somewhere in the North, I get only one point two pounds for the pound I invest. So. Uh, And that is not a very sustainable approach, I think, in in the UK. Thank you, Stephanie.
0: And Richard, you mentioned um, that one of the effects from COVID may well be that um, we rethink um, London's relationship with the regions. And so, you know, this question around um, changing uh, fiscal policy using R&D to incentivize, for instance, um, different areas. Um, Just kind of give us your thoughts on how it is that Maybe this is already beginning to play out a bit anyways.
4: I I think part of the problem is that there are still people sitting in SW1 who think that they can actually manage this whole process from SW1, from central London. I think that is a real problem. And actually, that's a real problem for people living in Barking as well as for people living in Barnsley. It still feels very distant. And I think we've seen the sort of myth of central control, I think, has been played out through some of the coronavirus interventions as well, where um, centralised services have struggled um while localized services have picked up picked up so i think picking up on what stephanie said i think more uh, local empowerment and that's got to involve fiscal devolution otherwise it simply becomes a matter of uh, government distributing money in slightly different ways more fiscal devolution is an essential part of uh, helping the regions to um, rebalance with london I think incentives like enterprise zone incentives have worked very well um, in parts of London in the past. Um, I think there's a case for them in a lot of areas right now that give breaks both on business rates, which are a pretty lousy tax to start with, um, and uh, um, tax breaks on capital capital investment. Um, and those worked very well in the occasion in the past. And I think those could be targeted. I think the, the challenge that comes with centralization, and it's interesting to think how this could be overcome in a more regionalized economy, is that the man in Whitehall, man or woman in Whitehall feels that they have to spread the jam thinly across the country and feel they have to sort of allocate things around the country. And I don't get the the impression of that sense of regional specialization that uh, Stephanie talks of in Germany, actually being able to operate very easily in England. And that's partly about geography. We have a big cluster of urbanized areas in the Northern middle of the country. but I think it's worth thinking how greater regional power could actually enable greater differentiation and greater cooperation rather than simply all trying to bid for the same bottom money from Whitehall among, among Northern leaders. Um, so I think probably the politics and the political economy of uh, the UK's regions need to shift as well as the incentives from central government.
0: Thank you. Um, the next question is coming from uh, Charlie Garnett. Um, to what extent do panelists think we face a reskilling, upskilling challenge, and what levers should be used uh, to do this? Um, so it's another great question. Um, looking for uh, volunteers,
3: um, Richard Jones. <laughs> yeah, d- d- this is a great question, and I think. Um, it's one of these areas where there's a conventional wisdom that's kind of half right, and and one needs to go. Beyond. It's not always the case with conventional
0: wisdom. Yeah. It's so, always at least partly right.
3: <laughs> so, so, you know, the story goes: if you go and talk to uh, uh, anyone in you know a, a, an underperforming, a depressed northern city, people will always say it's all about the skills, and they're kind of right because if you look at the statistics, uh, very often you see do, do see big deficits in skills. But I think that the, the kind of then the, the, the pat answer comes, well, that it's all about skills. We just need to kind of create more skilled people and it'll all be fine. And I think that's really wrong because I think skills is the demand side problem as much as the supply side problem. And I think, you know, Stephanie's uh, description of what happened in Munch and Gladbach is really interesting because, you know, it's how do you I, I don't think you can I don't think you can take a region that has suffered a structural change. So its major industry has gone, coal mining's gone or textiles has gone or whatever. I don't think you can just need to all learn how to code. I don't, don't, don't think it works because you have to create the demand for skills. And so I think what we need to do is to have an innovation policy that's much more joined up with a skilled policy, so I, you know, I know, we do suffer a lot of kind of German, German envy, and you know, we look at things like the Fraunhofer Institutes and the vocational uh, training that that, that Germany is so good at. But you know, those are great models. You know, we have to, to 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 try and think of some specialism that builds on what cluster is already there, but can can evolve from what, what's already present. So you know, going from normal you know conventional apparel textiles into technical textiles is a great example where you get, you know you get a loom and you stop making shirts and you start making carbon fiber for bits of aeroplane that, that, that that's a kind of transition that you can make then you need to support that with support for innovation through translational research and again you know we all look at the fan offer institutes and think that's a fantastic way of doing it and then you have to couple that with a kind of skills policy and you have to kind of join up vocational skills fe colleges in this country to 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 start to meet the demand that 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 you have there so i think that's how i think one ought to think about the upskilling challenge not just something in isolation that you know we just look at Barnsley and say oh we haven't got enough people who've who've got high enough qualifications but actually think what will make what would make people want to get qualifications? What would make people think if they put the effort in to, 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 to acquire skills, they'll be rewarded with good quality jobs and and a career ahead of them? And so I think industrial policy, innovation policy, skills policy need to think much more than we have uh, to, together than we do at the moment.
0: Thank you, Richard. Um, Stephanie, uh, Richard mentioned there as German um envy. <laughs> so um, just uh, just quickly before I, I bring Ben in on, on this, is there anything on the upscaling, just a very quick lesson we could turn, take from Germany possibly. We only have about 10 minutes left so um won't, won't have time to fully explore
2: it yeah. no and also i would be very reluctant to uh to say that germany can give any lessons I, I i really don't don't like that at all a friend of mine has written that book which is very successful uh, why the germans do it better and i find it very awkward this title um but uh, when it comes to skills i mean there is one thing i remember when i was um correspondent in brussels there was constantly a row between the commission and uh, and uh, the german um, representatives about um, uh, reforming the um, vocational training in europe and make it all the same so germans have very very strict um, rules about um, training training kids Uh, so while here almost all kids go to university in germany a lot of um, young people go first to do do an apprenticeship do work in a bank and then study economics or work as a carpenter, And then they really have, um, they really get um, titles like, I don't know, I can you can't even really translate it. I mean, this is already tells you that in Britain, I don't know how I could translate the terms of um, a Meister or Geselle or um, Lehrling. So there, there are different levels of how you, how you are skilled up, so to say. And with every skill you have more, and that's the incentive, you earn more money. If I, or if I think of Switzerland, I know Switzerland quite well. People are constantly doing retraining, whether they are a plumber or a mechanic, they just do training all the time because then they will earn more money because they can, they can offer a more qualified, high-tech work. And, and this is just in the interest of the individual to get more training. And there's still a massive lack in this country to understand that, I'm afraid. And I don't want to give any lessons again. Um, ben, just
0: a really quick word from you, because there's just another question I want to try and um, get through before we wrap up.
4: Yeah,
1: sure. I mean, at CPP we are skills, 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 and um, yes, it is obviously a jobs, a jobs demand problem, definitely. But you have to have the skills there to be able to do good jobs, and we just we, our, our skills system is going in the opposite direction with less people involved in adult skills. The apprenticeship system is not performing as it should do. Um, So it's not giving those opportunities to people who are from, you know, left behind places or whatever horrible phrase you want to use, who could find a route out of that and into good jobs. So we need a combination, as Richard said, of having good jobs and the demand sorting the demand side out, which is about industrial strategy, but we must sort out our skills system. And it's been, I think government has been poor in terms of the level of commitment they've put into skills and retraining during this crisis.
0: Well, actually, that is the next question. The last question um, from um, uh, Will Mapplebeck, um which is what then what, what one practical thing could central government do now to achieve levelling up before then to achieve some result before the next election?
1: So I think uh, we we would go on the skills point, and we've actually set out almost a bit of a manifesto in terms of what government could do to support skills and training. So one of the big things we call for is the learners living allowance. Um, so it's equivalent to maintenance loans for higher education students, because for, for, for many years, obviously, adult education has not been seen and has, has nowhere near parity of esteem with higher education. We have to get it there if we're going to go through this big structural changes in the economy and come out the other side with a different style of economy, which is built on high, high paid, good jobs rather than low paid, low skilled equilibrium, which you seem to be in in so many places at the moment.
0: Thank you. Um, I think we've managed to hit um, uh, at least one question from everybody and we are um, in the last few moments so we're gonna have to wrap up. Um, I think it's been, a, it's been a great discussion, I think around um, the two um, aspects that matter for the economy. Um, so capital investment and skills, which is human capital. And um, I think we've covered quite a lot of ground um, on that. And I think both of those things um, are domestic policies um, that have trade um, implications, and obviously, all trade and investment policy is rooted in domestic competitiveness. And I think that really shows from what we're discussing today. Um, but I'm going to put everybody on the spot and ask for a one-minute answer, which is to look at it the other way, which is we wanted to build global Britain. Um, you know, what um, what kind of uh, policy would you like to see from the central governments? Trade and investment policy that you think will make a difference in leveling up. Um, hmm, nobody wants to be first. <laughs> okay, Richard Jones, you can be first.
3: <laughs> yeah, so so I, I, I'm going to uh, uh, not answer your question properly. I think. I, I mean, I think the, the key thing is that I think uh, cities and regions need to be empowered to create their own policy. And you shouldn't think, you know, it, not everything has to go through London. Manchester is a global city by itself. Uh, it's, uh, it, it's perfectly able to, to, to project itself, to, to, to create a kind of self-confident brand, to, to, to build its own innovation and skill system and to, you know, deal with the rest of the world on those terms. So I think supporting cities and regions to do that is, uh, is what central government ought to do.
0: Thank you. You did answer the question, Richard, <laughs> very well. So, thank you, Richard Brown.
4: I think, and it's not quite—it's not quite answering the question either. But I
0: think, <laughs> I'm beginning to think there's something wrong with my question at this point. I think devolving,
4: <laughs> well, I think it's because none of us know. I, I certainly don't know quite enough about the intricacies of trade policy. But I think actually, looking again at um, looking together at um, immigration and skills together, I think actually think, allowing cities and regions more control over their own immigration policy is another area that we should look at because i think at the moment we have um a by default relatively closed immigration system coming in i think actually allowing cities to compete in in which ways they wish to open themselves up to talent from across the world would actually be really interesting would actually start to shift the terms of debate that's proved quite toxic in this country Mm,
0: so visa for london is on the table (laughs)
4: <laughs> or for Stephanie. Newcastle or for, or for Manchester, yeah. I mean, it, it works Definitely. in Canada and Australia, I think, Canada certainly. Thank you,
2: Stephanie. Well, I, I certainly see the uh, global Britain from a bit of a different perspective and I can't talk about trade and, and industry, but I think global Britain is really something that from outside the UK, something that hopefully Britain will now achieve because if you think of so many international global challenges, for example, take take Iran, how important it is that Britain stays in the same boat with, with Germany and France and others to, to find a way out of, uh, of the situation which was created by Donald Trump. I mean, luckily, now we are in a better position. But while it sounds like what has Iran got to do with uh, Newcastle, it has a lot to do with Newcastle because it means stability. Or if it's, for example, from a German perspective, the security on the eastern flank of Europe, and what Russia is doing Britain is really needed Britain's intelligence Britain's security capabilities everything is needed because stability in Europe means that people get jobs and that you can invest and and therefore global Britain is very very welcome Thank you Stephanie
3: um,
1: Ben uh, yeah I, I think making leveling up real is is the answer here government has already pose part of a solution by talking about place you know this is the first time that we've really seen place take such a central role in a in a campaign and post campaign it has to really operationalize it and deliver the investment in it otherwise what we're going to see in 10 years when leveling up hasn't happened is again a bit of a race to the bottom in terms of gutter politics and that we just cannot abide and it doesn't do us well in terms of our global standing either
0: thank you Thank you. Those are great answers, by the way, <laughs> um, to, uh, to finish this um, really interesting panel. I think uh, my two cents worth on this is um, one of the um, projects that I lead is I'm chair of the LSE Economic Diplomacy Commission, which looks at the UK's uh, trade and investment policies. And one of our interim recommendations is actually for investment policy, foreign investment policy uh, to be decentralized, um, to have it to be devolved. So just like in Germany uh, and in China and other places, uh, localities can set uh, parameters and try to attract um, investment. They know their areas best um, and it gives that sense of competition and that gets that sense of, and it fits with how private sector firms actually operate, which is when they say when invest in the UK, they don't just go the UK, it's always where, where in the UK and you know perhaps um, perhaps that could also be added to the great list that everybody um, has shared with us. And in fact, um, I know there's a lot more we can say, but um, we are out of time. So let me just thank this uh, terrific panel, uh, Stephanie Bolzen, Richard Brown, Ben Franklin, and Professor Richard Jones. Um, so. Um, terrifically interesting uh, discussion, and thanks to um, all of you for uh, submitting such great questions um, that um, we got into straight away after the prepared remarks because they were such good questions. And I want to um, thank all of you for tuning in um, and to give us uh, giving us your time. And I hope that you will also join us for uh, CPV events um, in the new year. So thank you all, and there's some web link uh, in the chat um, if you want to. Uh, Click on that um, and check out some of those events. So thanks again uh, for tuning in and thanks very much to a terrific panel.